You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 39 through 55. If you follow along with me, it'll also be on the screen in front of you. Beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her, from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. I just want to pause there. Just read that again on your own quietly. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Father, I ask that you would come and do what we know you desire to do, which is to speak through your word in such a way that we might meet you, that we might encounter you, that we might encounter you as our Father who loves us deeply, as our healer who comes and at times cuts open infected areas, scrapes out the wound, closes it back up, and covers it with the healing balm of the gospel. Come and encounter us in such a way, Father, that we would Submit to you, be humbled by you, be comforted by you, strengthened and encouraged and challenged and given courage. Father, we pray that you would come and do this and so much more. Father, we pray that you would come and even through the preaching of your word today that you would save some. That you would draw to yourself for the very first time those who are gathered with us this morning who have yet to bow their knee to you. Father, we pray that you would do that and that you would reveal yourself in all of your splendor and your glory 
And that in doing so, Father, that you would push away and remove anything that would seek to distract or to prohibit us from hearing a life-giving word from you. So, Father, I finally I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would cause them to bring honor and glory to you because you are our rock and our redeemer. And it is you that we desire to encounter this morning. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. So as we uh, read the text, um, paused for a moment there at verse 46, and asked uh, for you to um, think on that. Verse 46 once again says, My soul magnifies the Lord. You think about that word magnify. You think about what that word means. Let me ask you, what does your heart magnify? What has been underneath the magnifying glass of your heart this morning when you woke up, when you walked in, when you sat down? When Abe gave you the opportunity to greet one another, what was your heart magnifying in that moment? Maybe too afraid to get out of your seat to say hi to someone. Maybe too comfortable to do so. Maybe it would be um, too hard for you to do that. Maybe when he talked about um, the challenge in giving, maybe at that moment you tuned out because what was underneath the magnifying glass of your heart was just pure selfishness. Let me just ask you, what is underneath the magnifying glass of your heart this morning? Is there something about the Christmas season here in America that awakens certain desires and certain things inside of us that seem to kind of uh, lie asleep throughout the year until this season hits? And then suddenly all these latent desires that were there pop back up. It's interesting how a, a holiday in a nation can do that to people, isn't it? I don't know if you believe half of what I'm saying. One thing that I think you might agree with me on is this. My heart and your heart are like magnifying glasses in reality. And there are a ton of small things in this life that have a tendency to consume the attention of my heart. Let me just ask you um, about your previous week before Sunday rolled in. Before you went to bed last night and you thought about gathering with God's people, what consumed your heart? Was your heart uh, consumed with the thought and the idea that I get to get up in the morning and gather with God's people and worship Jesus together. Therefore, you woke up out of bed this morning so overjoyed and so excited that you ran out of your house and you ran to church and you showed up early and you were full of energy and your cell phone was put away and you're ready to see God's people. You were excited for that. Was that you? Sadly, nine times out of ten, the answer is probably no for most of us, right? Let this be a gut check. Actually, better yet, let this be a heart check for us. 
A lot of small things have a tendency to consume the attention of my heart. Sometimes I worry over the outcome of some particular circumstance. Sometimes I get fearful over what the future may hold, or I lust, or I obsess over things I don't have or that I can't have. The tendency to get bitter or resentful because of the pain of some relational loss. Put that underneath the microscope, magnifying microscope of your heart for a moment. Struggle with these little seeds of sin in my heart that are tied to circumstances, tied to feelings, tied to unmet desires. Little seeds of sin sprout and they grow. And then before I know it, my heart, just like a magnifying glass, is completely filled up with these little itty-bitty things I didn't even notice were growing, taking root. You ever struggle with that? You ever struggle with what's under the magnifying glass of your heart? Right, the bank account seems thin. The vehicle breaks down again. Kids start arguing again. Golly. Physical health deteriorates. Boss continues to be a butthead, right? Yes, I did say that. Put that under your microscope for a while. You and your spouse can't seem to work through some ages-old issue in your marriage. Uh, or on the flip side, you're single. Come home to an empty home every night. Dinner alone. Maybe you're crazy enough as a single person to watch Hallmark movie channel movies, especially the Christmas ones during this season, which is basically the same story over and over and over again anyways. I'm going to seek to prove to you just how inadequate you are because you don't have that other significant other in your life. Maybe for you it's an old habit. Maybe it's that old habit of isolating yourself from other people. Start drowning your sorrows in some unhealthy behavior again, right? Begins to look really good to do so. Before you know it, you spin out again. You wake up the next morning and you wonder, what the heck happened? These moments, um, you recognize and realize these things, you start asking yourself questions, don't you? At some point. Your questions might sound like this. Why did my heart get consumed with that little bitty thing again? Why? Why did it get consumed with that little bitty thing again? Why did I let this small little thing become a huge, massive thing in my life? Maybe you ask this question, will there ever be a sense of satisfaction in this life? Anybody ever ask that? I mean, I ask that every time I eat a steak. Because I feel really satisfied afterwards, and the problem is I wake up the next morning and I want another one. I'm not satisfied completely. might start asking, when will these circumstances ever change? You ask that question? Anybody? You ask, will I ever experience a day without some sort of emotionally draining thing capturing my soul? Will my deepest dreams, my deepest desires ever get met? It's a sense of longing for what you do not have. Maybe you cannot have it, but it's a desire and it's unmet. And you just wish things would be different. In the midst of all that, you start asking questions about God, don't you? Does God really love me? Is he really real? Is God really trustworthy? Is he really 
faithful. Will God actually meet me in the midst of my trouble? Read the book of Job sometime. And if you read it, and you read it intently, man, by the time you get to the 40th chapter, he's just begging God to show up into my circumstances. If you read Job, you're just begging God to speak. Like, would you just say something about this man and what's happening to this man? You may not be familiar with the book of Job here this morning. Um, I just encourage you maybe go check it out in light of what you hear from this text this morning. Will God actually meet me in the middle of my trouble? So what's under the magnifying glass of your heart? What's been magnified in your life is the question. Because that is the stage that is set for the text that we have in front of us today. Mary and Elizabeth, these two ladies couldn't be more different in some ways. And they couldn't be uh, more alike in other ways. Elizabeth um, is an old lady, okay? It's the only way to say it. She's unable to have a baby until God shows up and she miraculously becomes pregnant in verses 5 through 25 of chapter 1. Mary, on the other hand, is a very young lady. She might be in her late teens. She was engaged to the man of her dreams. His name was Joseph. I personally think he was a pretty good dude. Because he has my name. If you're tracking. Everything's going fine, right? She's uh, engaged to the man of her dreams. Everything's looking up. She's young. She's got to be preparing, right? Wedding dress shopping. Thinking about getting the house together. Making plans for their future. Getting the guest list together for the wedding day. Thinking about the honeymoon. You know how this goes. Everything's going fine until the Lord shows up. So this is a way in which things are different. Everything's fine until the Lord shows up, you might say, right? She miraculously becomes pregnant even though she's still a virgin. Imagine that. Why would God choose a story like that to work through? Like, Why would God leave any hint that there could be anything inappropriate that could be happening? Why would God do so? I won't even answer the question. I just challenge you, go read the story. Can you imagine what was happening in these two ladies' lives in those moments? What was going on inside of their hearts? Can you imagine what was underneath the magnifying glass of their hearts? Can you imagine the church member chatter on the private Facebook group in Nazareth? Ooh. Ooh. Buddy, it'd be rough, rough. They aren't even married yet. Can you believe this? She claims to be a virgin? Hmm. I don't know who that girl's trying to fool, right? 
And she, she is way too old to have a baby. What would you do in Elizabeth's shoes? What would you do in Mary's shoes? I personally would probably want to get out of town for a bit. Go sit in a tree stand, get my head cleared, have a conversation with an old friend, which is kind of exactly what Mary does. She takes a road trip in verses 39 through 40. After the angel Gabriel visited Mary with the news of her miraculous conception, she decided to take a road trip to see her cousin Elizabeth. Now, I want you to think about this road trip for a minute. Uh, This road trip wasn't just a hop, skip, and a jump from one town to the next. Didn't just hop in her car and take a quick hop over there. This trip for Mary would have most likely been approximately about 100 miles. Okay? 100 miles. Now, for those of us who have instant gratification issues because of our cell phones and our cars, in our heated homes, (laughs) and the list goes on and on, um, this is, we're pretty far removed from this, okay? Um, maybe the challenge could be this. Maybe next Sunday what we all ought to do is leave our cars and our cell phones at home and plan to come together for a church gathering on foot. Can you imagine where your heart would be when you walk through the door? And imagine what time you'd show up here. Imagine how excited you might be to walk into a warm building and see your friends and drink a warm cup of coffee, right? That would be a blessing for for us. Imagine what kind of a blessing you would be for others in the room if you showed up that prepared. So this road trip wasn't just a hop, skip, and a jump away. It's nearly 100 miles on foot, not to mention she's pregnant, okay? I know it's hard maybe at times for us, maybe more so for men, to read this passage and connect with it. Because, face it, guys, we're never going to be pregnant, right? Um, We're never going to be pregnant. This would have been a carefully calculated trip, though. Let me think about the careful calculation that that it required of Mary in these moments. Probably would have taken a few days to travel there by foot through hill country. That's what the text says, hill country. So if you want to get a frame of reference for this, I don't think it was the Rocky Mountains. I think it was more like the Black Hills, if I'm doing my study appropriately. So this is a few days of hiking in the Black Hills as a pregnant young woman, possibly alone, maybe had an assistant with her. What would you imagine Mary's thinking about as she's traveling? Do you think she was checked out behind her cell phone? Probably not. What do you think she was thinking about as she was traveling? Can you imagine the kinds of little things that must have popped up that could have captured the attention of her heart? Or maybe it sounded something like this, if you think about the rhythm of her soul. Maybe it sounded something like, um, what's everybody going to say? You ever struggle with that? Worry about what other people think or say about you? Let that consume your heart for a while, and where do you end up? Put that one little thought under the magnifying glass of your heart and tell me where you end up a few moments later. What will they say? Not even married yet. I didn't sleep with Joseph yet. 
And was that vision from the angel real? Like that's a similar question that we all ask, isn't it? Like, is the word of God real? Like, is his word really for me? Will Joseph even stay with me? Am I even ready to have a baby yet? My baby really going to be the savior of the world that we've waited for for so long? I imagine these things going on in Mary's mind. I imagine her thinking, and I wonder what Elizabeth is going to say. And then I imagine her arriving at the house after a few days of travel. I imagine she slows down as she comes to the driveway and she sees the front door. Not quite sure whether she's going to be accepted or received there. Right? Maybe, maybe not. So I put myself in Mary's shoes and I think, what do I do? You walk towards the door, you open the door, you decide to walk in and greet your cousin, hoping for the best. And what happens? Well, what happens, we see in the text in verses 41 through 45, Elizabeth greets Mary in return, right? Doesn't kick her out the door. See, the moment that Mary's voice reached Elizabeth's ears, uh, Elizabeth, who was pregnant as well, baby John the Baptist, down inside her tummy, baby John the Baptist leaps for joy in her womb. And in that moment, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, the text actually says that. There's some significance there, I think. See, these babies in both of these women's wombs, both of them, were far more than these little blobs of unformed, unfeeling substance like so many people in our day believe. Right? But there was an electrical connection between two living, breathing, feeling, human being babies inside of these mothers' wombs. One of those babies is John the Baptist. He's going to be the very last and the very greatest of the Old Testament prophets. That's an interesting thing to conceptualize and think about. Out of all the great Old Testament prophets, he would be the last and the greatest. The other baby is going to be Jesus. He's going to be what I would call the first and the greatest prophet of the New Testament because he prophesies concerning himself that he is the Savior of the world. So one baby, John the Baptist, uses his mother's womb for a pulpit, and the other one, Jesus, is going to be the point of every true pulpit in all of human history. In those moments, the Old Testament, or you could say the Old Covenant, as well as the New Testament, the New Covenant, they met. There's an electrical spark that takes place between those two babies inside of those two pregnant women in those moments. And Elizabeth's greeting is Holy Spirit inspired. I think that's why Luke, the author of the text, who out of all the gospel writers writes more about the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Any of those four, Luke writes about the Spirit the most. So for Luke as an author, it's important to point out that Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, 
is filled with the Holy Spirit before she speaks. And then she speaks. So the doctrine, the teaching here would be that the that what the Holy Spirit, what Elizabeth said was Holy Spirit induced. Was inspired by the Holy Spirit. These aren't just the words of some human woman. It's as though God is speaking through Elizabeth in these moments. Some people have called Elizabeth's greeting uh, the very first Christmas carol of the New Testament for a lot of reasons. But there's argument, so I won't go into it much. It's either a flat-out, prosaic greeting, or it is, on the other hand, a poetic song. If I had to lean one way or the other, I would probably say it's more of a song because of the wording. The way that you see it in your Bibles is more of a greeting. Besides the point, her greeting, her song, is filled with joy. It's filled with blessing. Can I just ask you, when you sing songs to the Lord here on Sunday mornings, is your heart so full of Jesus that you just can't wait to sing that next song? That you want to sing out energetically because you're so moved emotionally by the object that is underneath that magnifying glass? Or there's something else underneath the magnifying glass of your heart that is stealing your praise and your energetic worship of your Savior. Which is it? See, Elizabeth couldn't help but to bless Mary because of the baby in her womb. She didn't just bless Mary to bless Mary. She blessed Mary because of the baby that was in her womb. This is what happens to someone who has spent time in the presence of their Savior. Have you been in the presence of your Savior this week? From last Sunday until this Sunday, have you been in the presence of your Savior? Now, for those of you that might be gathered with us who are like, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not even a Christian. I'm just here because a friend invited me here. I just want to invite you to contemplate and to think about what it would be like to be in the presence of someone who has loved you since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Since before any inanimate object was made, your face and your name and your life was written down in his little book. And he thought about you and he knows you. He knows every intimate detail about you. And then in this season of Christmas that we celebrate, it's a celebration of him coming, humiliating himself from a place called heaven where he existed, quote unquote, outside of connection with humanity the creator of all things and all humanity comes here to be with the objects and the people that he created so that he might be born of a virgin named Mary so that he might be perfect, so that he might die your death on a cross to pay the price for your sin. That's the message of the gospel. It's proof of God's deep eternal love for you. Elizabeth's words are also 
full of humility. Think about the humility that you see in the words of Elizabeth here. She exclaims this in verse 43. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Think about this. Why? The mother of my Lord come to me. Why do I get that privilege? Shouldn't that also be the question that every one of us in this room has? Why? Why would anyone want to come and die for me? Why? What would that motivate inside of you if you put that one little speck under your magnifying glass and contemplated that and let that become so enlarged in your heart and mind rather than all the other small little things that could be stuck there? Imagine the result, the outcome in a family or in a church family or in a neighborhood or across the world for that matter if just a few people got in a room and Jesus was the object of their hearts. Question first is what would motivate anyone take out the small things that we usually worry about and put Jesus there. Could it not be that a realization that Christmas isn't about Christmas trees? That Christmas isn't about giving presents to one another? But it's really about one tree on a hill called Calvary and one gift of salvation through a baby named Jesus? Could it be that that tree and that gift is what this is about? And could it be that that realization is what would transform a heart? Take a cracked magnifying glass that is throwing up a distorted view of all the things that we incessantly put underneath of it. Could it be that that realization of that message of that tree and that gift wouldn't fix that magnifying glass in such a way that the only thing that you'd want to have underneath of it would be the person who hung on that cross? How would that radically transform the way that you live your life, the way that you interact with your coworkers, the way that you interact with your spouse or your ex-spouse for that matter? Elizabeth's words full of humility. Why is this granted to me the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's a question we should learn to ask about Jesus. Why would it be granted to me that Jesus would come and die for me? Elizabeth was humble, and Mary was blessed, and John the Baptist jumped for joy. That's that's their responses to Jesus coming to this earth. This is what happens when our hearts are consumed with Jesus. We get humbled by the, the majesty of Jesus. We realize how blessed we are despite our circumstances. Our our hearts leap with joy because of Christ and all of the small things that could possibly consume our hearts would melt away in the presence of Jesus, who deserves to be the centerpiece of our souls. This is what it looks like to have a Son of God magnified in our hearts. And the proof of that is found in the song that Mary sings. Mary sings a song of praise in verses 46 through 55, beginning with that verse that I highlighted earlier. My soul magnifies the Lord. <coughs> See, when my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
Is your heart full of joy for the Savior this morning, or has something else found its way underneath that magnifying glass for you? Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Luke 6.45 says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then I would add to that from other places in Scripture. Our hands act. Mary's song of praise flowed out of a heart that had to have been meditating on the goodness and the faithfulness and loving kindness of God during her road trip. I don't anticipate that Mary was taking that road trip complaining about how far the trip was or the blisters on her feet or the fact that she didn't have cell phone coverage or whatever it might be. I anticipate that as Mary took this trip, her heart was completely consumed with loving kindness and the mercy and the faithfulness of God. Her heart was so full of the treasures of God that her lips couldn't help but to magnify God. Mary's heart was a magnifying glass. and There was only one thing, one small thing under that magnifying glass. That small thing was this small baby deep down inside of her womb. And that small baby deep down inside of her womb pointed to the great big God that she served. Through her song of praise, she magnified the God who lifts the humble. Verses 48 to 50. And then, through her song of praise, she magnified the God who humbles the proud. Verses 51 through 55. That's the two basic ebbs and flows of her song. God lifts the humble, God humbles the proud. Her heart was overflowing with joy because she knew that God was her Savior. He he is mighty. He is great. He is holy. He is merciful. Those words aren't just religious words that preachers throw around. Those words have meaning. And they have implications for our lives if we call ourselves believers. God doesn't ever look at you and I and wink at the things that His Word calls sin. Why? Because it costed Him His Son's life. That was the cost. And yet, you and I, we wink at sin. We say God's Word doesn't really mean what it actually means. And then we put something else underneath the magnifying glass of our heart and wonder why Jesus is not so great in our lives. Mary's heart was overflowing with joy because she knew that God was her Savior. He is mighty. He is great. He is holy. He is merciful. And those who fear God, she talks about those who fear God, Those are important words that have important implications for the believer. 
and important implications for the unbeliever as well. The implication for the believer is that we would trust and obey God and His Word through thick and through thin. The implication for the unbeliever is simply that you would come to a place where you trust and obey God and His Word through thick and through thin. That you would experience His power. That you would experience His mercy. You see, the proud person could never experience the blessings of the presence of God because the proud person believes that he sits on the throne of his own life and makes up his own rules in contrast to what God has clearly spoken. So the proud person could never experience the blessing of the presence of God because God scatters that person's thoughts. He rips them down from their self-righteous thrones. He sends them away empty. This is the song of Mary, right? But the humble person, in contrast to the pride-filled person, the humble person who trusts and obeys God, which means to fear God, this person God lifts up, God fills up, God helps in their time of need. So, are you a proud person or a humble person? Dig a little bit deeper with that question. Are you proud or are you humble? Um, Do you believe what God's Word says? Do you read the plain interpretation of God's Word and do you seek to follow it and do you desire to? When confronted in your sin... Do you openly resist and reject because you're stuck there and you are proud? Here's the warning to you. God will rip you down from your high seat. And he'll leave you empty. And can I just say this? Like, better place to be empty, broken, acknowledging your sin and knowing how despicable you and I both are in front of God because that's the picture of humility and humbleness. Isn't it? God humbles the person who trusts and obeys and fears Him. That person gets lifted up, filled up, and helped in their time of need. So this is Mary's song of praise. And according to the last verse of her song, um, this song was founded on the stage of God's promise. For all the talk of sin, there's an even greater conversation about a Savior. That if you truly know Him, it really changes your outlook on sin. When you start to understand that this is a promise that, as Mary says, was made to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Words have meaning. Means of words have implications. This promise that Luke talks about, it's all the way back in Genesis. Garden of Eden. First man, first woman. Say that intentionally. We're in the garden. They sinned. They did what God said do not do. Right? What did they do? Somebody yell it out to me so I know you're all awake. They ate the fruit. Could have been an apple. I think the uh, old Apple symbol on my iPhone has a bite taken out of it. I don't know what that says. but Okay. 
so, all the way back in Genesis, first man, first woman, they sinned by doing what God said do not do. Do you want to know what they also did at the same time as they did what God said do not do? They also completely rejected everything that God said go ahead and do. There is a whole smorgasbord in that garden. There was only one thing that God said don't do. At the expense and cost of everything they could be doing in absolute freedom, they chose the one thing that would get them into prison. God shows up, has a conversation with them. They immediately feel ashamed. Covers them with skins of an animal that he kills. God kills the animal, covers them with skin. Blood is shed to cover their shame and their nakedness and their guilt. Interesting that the God's the one who initiates that. And in that has a conversation with them and says, Hey, there's consequences for this. Getting kicked out of my garden because you can't take care of it, right? So you knew that. So here's the consequences. Deal with it. But here's my promise to you. Even though you have rejected me, you've rebelled against me, you've acted rottenly, here's my promise to you. My promise to you, Eve especially, both of you, Adam and Eve, but Eve especially, your seed Your seed will crush our enemy's head. So then throughout all these generations for thousands of years, people do what people do. They get married, they make babies. Sometimes they don't get married and they make babies, right? But one of the things that people do is they make babies. Have I made my point clear enough? There's a reason for this. It's easy to kind of skip over that. But the reality is that through the event of, or experience of, or act of making babies, a genealogical line is built from Adam and Eve through David to Jesus. And it's absolutely miraculous if you go and you do the study. So I just was engaged in 16 intense weeks of studying the entire Old Testament. That's why I'm a little bit passionate about this right now. 16 weeks, read the entire Old Testament, as well as a stack of commentaries this tall and wrote gazillions of papers for it. Not just because I love academics. I love God's Word. I love God's Word because when God's Word speaks, it sets us free. And if you were to follow the genealogical line through the act of making babies, all the way through, you would see God's invisible, sovereign hand protecting and guiding that seed from Adam and Eve all the way through the family line until Jesus. Fascinating. This is the promise. And the promise is simply that her seed will crush the serpent's head. Satan, sin, and the grave. Those are our mortal enemies. Satan hates you. comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. Sin is something that you're infected with because every person from the point of conception forward, in my humble opinion based on the scriptures, is infected with this little seed called sin. And there ain't no getting out of it. The consequences for that sin that is living actively inside of you is something called death. 
Every person dies. Agreed? Pretty sure there's only one person that may not have died in the scriptures, just got translated straight to heaven. Not quite sure why that happened. Can't wait to find out. But there is one person for sure that still tasted death, though he never sinned. His name is Jesus. Perfect. And in that way, he crushes the serpent's head, crushes sin's head, and he crushes death's head. Death doesn't hold, have a hold over you and I anymore. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what she's pointing to when she says, it's the promise to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring, forever. That word forever, you know what it means? <laughs> forever, yeah, you guys are awesome. Really, really good. <laughs> we, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's easy. <laughs> you know what forever means? <laughs> Very good. Forever, eternity. See, when my heart is captured by the small but seemingly big problems of this life, what I need in those moments is not another dose of earthly pragmatic wisdom, right? I don't need that. I need to be brought back to the everlasting promises of God's word through the gospel to me. I need to be reminded that God remembers his promises and God always comes through on his word. <coughs> Love never fails. His mercy lasts forever. His salvation over me is signed in the blood of his son. It is sealed by the power of his spirit. It's been delivered into heaven's throne room for all of eternity. That's a massive thing to think about. Put that underneath the magnifying glass of your heart for a moment. <coughs> See, the problems of this life are momentary. They're like a wisp of wind. It's really interesting how easy it is for you and I to allow those momentary wisps of wind to absolutely control our lives, isn't it? Like that wisp of wind, this desire for anything that God says you cannot have and should not have right now, right? It's momentary. The problems of this life are real. Don't get me wrong. We experience it. We feel it. And they're hard and they're difficult. There's nothing about this life that is easy at all. It's not going to last forever, though. How easy it is to be consumed by something so small and so momentary when all of eternity is hanging in the balance. The trade eternity for the momentary. When was the last time you traded eternity for the momentary? This is a call to you to repent, right? It's to start thinking with eternal thoughts rather than momentary thoughts. Let me pull up your little thumb. Some of you have done this with me a few times. Find one of these big lights on the ceiling. Pull that thumb back into your eye until that's all you're seeing is the thumb and no longer the light. Now answer this question, which one's bigger, the thumb or the light? Yeah, so see? <coughs> how easy it is. You all just did it with me. So, 
The power of coercion from a guy on a stage is enough. Okay? Your little thumb can block out a big light. That's the money shot for the whole sermon, isn't it? This is what's happening inside of our hearts when we walk in on a Sunday morning and gather together. That's the eternal battle and the war that's been waged since the Garden of Eden until today. But the beauty of this whole story is that God sent Jesus. But just like my little thumb can block out something as big as the moon, the same with my little problems, my little problems, my little sinful desires, I think I block out something as big as the reason that Jesus came to this earth. And pretty soon I think it's about getting more things. When my heart is like a magnifying glass. And what I put underneath of it becomes magnified. And so the question for all of us today, once again, is what did you walk in this morning with under the magnifying glass of your heart? When I think about the real reason for the Christmas season, every little thing that seeks to capture my heart melts away. When I survey the wonder of the cross of Christ, when I, when I think about the power of the empty tomb, when I contemplate the promise of heaven, then all of those little things seem to loom so large in my heart, they dissipate, they melt away. And it's, it's interesting how easy it is that this can happen, right? Um, throughout the week. Man, one conversation with somebody for a moment, I don't know if you're the same way, but one quick conversation, you come home from work, you see your spouse, conversation happens, you're moving fast, you're on the run. Before you know it, a few minutes later, you're consumed by something that he or she said, and you don't even know that you were consumed by it, right? And then pretty soon you're like, man, where's Jesus? Where did I leave him at? Could be a coworker, right? Could be, could be you struggle with some sexual addiction, you're thumbing through things on the computer, and suddenly you see a picture and you go, whoa. Five hours later, you're like, what the heck just happened? Where's Jesus? I, mean, I, I cast scenarios all day long. This is the pattern and the rhythm and the struggle of our lives if we're alive. What we need to remember is that we are blessed beyond belief. We need to remember that earth is not our final resting place. is isn't our home. Despite my longings for the things of this earth, the cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven, it radically transforms the magnifying glass of my heart. <clears throat> what happens in those moments as I contemplate yet again the power of eternity in the gospel, I find peace. I find peace in these quiet moments with God. I find clarity. I find healing. I find hope. I find strength in the Word of God. I find my heart overflowing with songs of praise for my Savior. That's what I find. My challenge to you as I wrap this up, it's really a question and an invitation. <coughs> it's a question and invitation that goes like this. Would you join me as we close? Would you join me as we close in communion, as we close in songs of praise? Would you let God redirect the meditations of your heart? Would you let Him redirect the words of your mouth as you sing to Him, as you remember the gift of His Son at the cross? 
Would you let the Spirit of the living God come and do a work of transforming the magnifying glass of your heart? Would you begin to maybe put your thumb down so that you might see the majesty and the power and the love and the mercy and the faithfulness of Christ? Would you do that this morning? And maybe in those moments, would you ask God, because you don't need somebody to do this for you, would you ask God fill you with His presence? Would you ask God to remove those tiny little things that you had stacked up underneath that magnifying glass? Would you ask Him to Remove those little things and refocus the attention of your heart on Him. Whatever happened at work this week, whatever happened with your spouse this morning, whatever happened with your kids, whatever happened last night on your computer screen, all of that needs to move away and Jesus needs to take up a center place. Will you make Him the object of your attention this morning? Here's the thing, my last word. God loves you. Have you heard that in a while? Can I just ask you, have you really heard that in a while? Think of those three words. God loves you. He knows everything about you. He knows every thought that's gone through your head. He knows every word that came out of your mouth. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every painful thing you've experienced. And he's here. And he's present. And even though he knows you so completely, even the parts of you that you don't even know, the parts of you that you try to hide from yourself, he knows that. He knows you completely and He loves you completely. If you're single here and you really want to get married and you knew that a significant other thought of you that way, how much would you want to spend time with that person? How much? What would you do? What would you do to spend time with that person? Somebody who knew you completely but loved you absolutely. What would you do? Wouldn't you crawl across broken glass to get there? This is a picture of God. He loves you completely even though He knows every complete thing about you. And because of that, He loves to meet you in whatever place you're in this morning. He loves to meet you in your despair, your fear, your loneliness, your pain, your sorrow, your worry, your doubt, your lust, your pride, the list goes on and on and on. He loves to meet you in the ash heaps of your sin. It's what He came to this earth to do. He loves to hold out His hand as a good father at the end of the driveway when a rebellious son comes home. And He loves to say, come here. Come sit up on my lap. 
Come to me, I love you. So Mary and Elizabeth had both heard the promising and comforting word of the Lord to them. As a result of that implication, their hearts both overflowed with the joy and the blessings of faith-filled lives. The magnifying glasses of their hearts had been redirected off of their problems, their small little problems, to the one who was bigger than anything they had or would ever experience on this earth. So the question is, is, will you let the Lord transform the magnifying glass of your heart? And my prayer is that you will. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask as we close, Father, that your spirit and your presence would be with us. That you would draw us to you and that you would do a work of healing, strengthening, transforming. We trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.